Thank you, Joanne. I know that was a very, very long passage, and I had intended it to be read by somebody else, but that somebody else chickened out, so I'm not going to say who that person is. Um, wow, my microphone is very live. Good morning. My name is Abe. I'm the campus pastor here at Wicker Park, and we are so happy to see all of you joining us together to worship the God who has all authority. You know, and over the past few months, the pastors here at Church of the Beloved Network have been preaching on the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ as written by this guy named Mark. Mark was a friend of the Apostle Paul and a disciple of the Apostle Peter, and they helped him form this particular book. Now, I like to call this book of Mark, a, a mosaic of the Messiah, because it's so fast-moving, so many li little stories in there. It's amazing. In today's passage, as we dive deep into it, I want to start by saying I need to trust wholly on God. So would you take a minute with me right now and join me as we pray and prepare ourselves to, to dive into God's Word? Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of Man. And it is you who has all authority over the things on earth and the things beyond. And I humbly, humbly submit to you now. I beg you to use my voice for your kingdom come. Let, me, let it not be me. Let it be all you. Use me, God, as your instrument of truth in this place. In Christ's name, I lift this prayer to you. Amen. So... I have a really close friend of mine. We grew up together since high school, so about 14 years old. So we've known each other for about over 30 years. Um, and so when she found out that my wife and I were moving back to Chicago from San Francisco, it was, a, it was a good news. We were excited about reconnecting. But in spite of our long-lasting friendship, it took us over a year to actually synchronize our schedule so that we could spend time together. But finally, it happened recently. She loaded up her husband, her three kids, and her dog into their minivan, traveled down from the suburbs, because, you know, the city's better than the suburbs, traveled down from the suburbs, and we hung out one night. Now, part of the reason it was so hard for us to actually coordinate schedules and get together is because one of her sons is autistic. Um, and I, I've, I've seen him grow up good kid, you know, sweet boy, um, never had any issues until this particular evening. Now, I, I don't know much about autism, I'll tell you very, that honestly now, but I do know a little bit in that uh, disruption in uh, uh, patterns, schedule, food, anything can really trigger an episode, an, a meltdown, an event, and unfortunately, all the things, that new place, new food, new people, all of these things kind of culminated into a severe meltdown for this young boy. So it was, it was a, a kind of heartbreaking. This is 13-year-old boy. He's, I feel like he was definitely taller than me. He was bigger than me in general. So this big boy, all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, uncontrollably, just starts screaming at the top of his lungs. And as he's screaming, he's just banging his foot on the floor, shaking the ground, hitting his head uncontrollably. 
And I'm standing there, and all I can do is, you know, just stand back with my arms around her other two kids. Just heartbroken. We watched. We watched my friend. My friend who I had grown up with, I played French horn with. We traveled to Disney World together on a band competition. I watched her slowly try to, to soothe her son. I mentioned this story because as I was studying and preparing for today's message, the image of that uncontrollable situation suddenly came to mind as I read about this man. This, this guy, if you have to consider, there's this guy who probably had somebody who loved him. Maybe he was a dad. Maybe he was a husband. He was definitely somebody's son. Somebody who was loved by someone who was unable to control himself, unable to stop himself from hurting himself, unable to do anything but cry out in pain from the torment these demonic forces inside of him were causing, screaming at the top of his lungs, and all anyone could do is just hold on to their loved ones and say, thank God that's not you. Now, I, I, I beg you, please do not misunderstand what I'm saying here, I am in no way suggesting that an autistic child is any way like a demon-possessed man. That's not at all what I'm talking about. It's definitely not. What I wanted to demonstrate, though, and paint a picture for is this scenario, this person so out of control, so beyond the realm of understanding, that all you can do is sit back and think, what is going on? Today's message, as I was preparing again, I had the hardest time thinking about how we're going to go and dive into this. Because typically, if you've been to a church before, you'll notice that most pastors, what they'll do is find three points, try to use like a, an alliteration, maybe three, an acronym, uh, to make it easier to wrap it around your head. A little, nice little package. But as I was reading this story over and over again, I realized there's no three points. There's no acronym for me to come up with, no quip or anything like that. So what I want to do is just unpack this story, provide a bit of cultural context behind it. But what I'm going to do at the end is this. I am going to propose something for you to consider for those of you who proclaim Christ to be your King and Savior is a consideration for you and another one for those of you who do not. Okay? So let's dive into this. We're going to unpack this story and we're going to start with verses 1 and 2. And in verses 1 and 2, the first thing we notice is that we see chaos, and it's being represented by water. And let me show you this. In verse 1, it says, they come to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus has stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now last week, Pastor Otua was just up here, we call him Patois. Uh, you can ask him for more of an explanation behind that. But anyway, Patois preached on this, this crazy storm that resulted in extremely turbulent waters, water so turbulent that it made the most experienced fishermen scared. They weren't sure what was going on. This week, now we're traveling across that water into chaos. This chaotic situation with the demon-possessed man. Now, here's the thing. The Bible is full of metaphors, and one of the most 
common metaphors that are often used is this imagery of water being used to represent chaos. So some theologians use a term like chaotic waters, you know, very logical. Uh, one can find it from the beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, references, instances where water is used to demonstrate chaos, a, a thematic device that uses water imagery to point to the chaos in the world around us. And I want to I show you some of those. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says that the earth was without form and void, chaotic, and darkness was chaotic was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So water brings chaos. When God was talking to Noah in Genesis chapter 7, verse 4, God said, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground, bringing about water, bringing about chaos. Last week's passage, Mark chapter 4, verse 37, says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Water brings chaos. And in, in today's passage, we travel across water. Water is taking us to chaos. And if we consider the intended reader, the original readers and receivers of this letter, of this book of Mark, a book of Jesus written by Mark, we'll see that he's reminding these Christians who are suffering from persecution that, that they have a suffering Savior who has authority, has authority over everything, from the natural, as Patois shared last week, to the supernatural, as we're going to see this week. See, water brings chaos, but Mark is reminding these Christian readers that Jesus, the Jesus we believe in, that they believed in, has dominion and has authority over everything because water brings chaos, but Jesus brings order. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, speaking about how that form and void and darkness was there over the face of the waters, the Spirit was uh, residing, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Our Father in heaven, the Father of Jesus, removed the chaos and created light. In Mark chapter 4, verse 39, it's written, and he awoke, speaking of Jesus, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And the Son of Man removes chaos, brings calm. The beginning of the Bible mentions water and chaos, and the end of the Bible mentions water and chaos. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, it reads of the coming of the upside-down kingdom of heaven with Christ's return. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first, first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. See, the Redeemer comes to remove the chaos. He comes because he has all the authority over the natural and the supernatural. He brings order to the chaos. 
And then moving down into verses 3 and 5, we see not only does he bring chaos, order out of chaos, we also start to see how much Satan hates God. Might seem obvious, but we're going to dive into this. In verse 3, it says, He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. And he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, C.S. Lewis is an author. Some of you guys might be familiar with him. He wrote a book called The Chronicles of Narnia. He also wrote a book called uh, Screwtape Letters. It's uh, interesting, my small group that I'm in, uh, made mention of this book, and the women's ministry recently did a book club study on this particular book. But it, one of the things it points out in this book is that one of the most insidious things that the devil has done in the modern age is to convince some people that he doesn't exist, which results in those folks never thinking about him. And at the same time, he's convinced other people to just be really fascinated by the devil, which means that those folks will always think about him. And here's the thing. The devil does exist. But I want to understand that so does God. Not to say they're equal. But I want to encourage you not to go down either path, too much or too little. You see, in the next few verses where I get to it, an over-fascination with the devil is pretty useless because ultimately God wins. And the devil knows that too. But an under-fascination with the devil isn't helpful either. You see, here's one thing to consider from this particular passage. The devil hates God so much, so much that, that he will literally do whatever he possibly can to hate, hurt anything and anyone that God loves, especially those made in his image, especially the beloved of God. Now, from the very first temptation in the Garden of Eden to right now, this present day, the devil is using lies, is using half-truths, is using anything within its power to convince and cajole us to turn away from God. It's not that big a deal. No one's going to get hurt. And in this passage, though, when that doesn't work, the devil just outright attacks This is the reality of the situation. The devil exists. You know, honestly, I know that in the Western world, we don't see this happening very much today, uh, other than in, like, movies. Uh, is, it could be a number of reasons why. Some say that maybe it's because uh, to see such possess demon possession-type scenarios would probably cause more people to run to God than run from God. Whatever the reason is, understand the devil is real. And it will use whatever it can within its power to manipulate and cajole. It's working hard to shackle each and every person into our own fear, loathing. And it's going to use whatever means possible because it hates God 
so much. Yet in spite of the fact that the devil hates God, we'll see in verses 6 and 7, it cannot deny God's authority. Let me read verse 6 and 7 to you. It says in 6, When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. I want you to, to imagine this in your mind. There, there's a naked guy. And for those of you who are under the age of 18, blur out the naked bits in your head like they do on Naked and Afraid. But anyway, there's a naked guy running, and, and he is right now unable to control himself. He cannot stop himself. All he can do is throw himself against the rocks. He's breaking his own bones. He's cutting his own skin. Yet, when he sees Jesus, when he sees the Son of God, he has enough wherewithal, he has enough control of his legs to run in his direction and fall on his knees in worship. He may be forced to live in the most wretched of places, but he fully recognizes the most beautiful Savior. This man, this garrison man, may be forced to cut himself with stones, which may be the reason why he constantly is screaming in pain, but he can still lay on the ground in worship to the Almighty King. But imagine still, within him are demons who also recognize Jesus, who also recognized the Son of God. And so even while this man has enough control over his legs to run to Jesus, to worship him in the hope of being healed, the demons within him are crying out. They're pulling back. They're trying to run in the other direction. They're begging Jesus, just leave us alone. Don't torment us. We just want to torture this guy a little bit longer. Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, is Matthew's telling of this same story. And he includes a little bit more on this demonic proclamation. And it says, and behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The demons know. There's no escape. They know they lose the war. They've already seen it. They know that the best that they can do is maybe take some people down with them. And they know that ultimately Jesus has all the power. They know that Jesus has all the authority. They know that Jesus can simply with a word send them to the pit of fire, send them to hell with a single command. They know this. But they also happen to know it's not time yet. It's, it's not supposed to happen just yet. The end is not here. Jesus has not yet completed his mission on earth. But they still know the Son of God has all authority. 
He has already demonstrated his authority. And so remember, this is being written to persecuted Christians. Just as the demons know, the Son of God has all authority. Mark is saying, remember, even the demons realize this, our Savior has all authority. He demonstrated it in the previous story against the natural, and he's about to demonstrate it now against the supernatural. Now this next section, verses, uh, I'll read 8 as well just for consistency, but verses 9 through 13. For those of you who are animal lovers, who are vegans or of a similar bent, it is a hard section, a difficult section to read. I understand it. It seems like such a senseless act against animals. For those of you who are more carnivorous, meat eaters, whom I proclaim to be, it's also, I'll be honest with you, it's also very hard to read as well because it seems like such a senseless act against bacon. So, we're going to read this anyway. Verses 8 through 13. And for he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Like I said, it is hard to read. It seems sad. But I want to leave you with one point to consider with regards to this particular section. You probably get it, something you understand, but I want to reiterate it and say it out loud anyway. Here's the thing. You are more important to God than anything. We are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. I am so important. We are so important to God that he let his son endure the most wretched experience, unjustly tortured, unceremoniously crucified. We are the beloved of God because of Christ alone, and this is the emphasis that he is making in this act. Because ultimately there is no price too big, there is no cost too high for my soul, for your heart. Now, as I mentioned, there, there's no three points. Just I wanted to unpack this story, provide you a bit of context behind it. Um, but I want to leave you, as I said earlier, with one consideration for those of you who proclaim Christ as your Savior uh, and one for those of you who do not. Now, ultimately, both of these considerations, or we can call them application, questions. They're both, both based on the same theme or idea that we get from today's passage. Okay? And this is it. That Christ has authority over all things. Natural, supernatural. 
It's the same concept that you will see throughout the book of Mark. But it's a reminder, especially to the Christian who is suffering in silence, to the Christian who is being persecuted at life in their family or at work, to the one being taunted, ultimately that you have a Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer who suffered as well. And that the Savior, this Redeemer, has authority over everything. And that this is the one that we depend upon and have faith in. So here's the question I have for those of you who are not a follower of Christ. The question I pose to you is this. What are you more afraid of? Now, don't, I, I don't want to mis be misconstrued. I, I don't want you to enter into the body of Christ to proclaim Christ as your Savior out of fear you know, of hell or something like that. It's not that. But I don't want you to enter or avoid the body of Christ out of fear either. And let's look at verses 14 to 17. You see that. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon possessed man and to the pigs and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region now last week Patois preached on what it was that Jesus' disciples might have been afraid of as they are in that boat being tossed about I'm not going to rehash that for you. If you've not had an opportunity to hear that message, you know, go online on our website. You can even uh, sign up for a podcast. We have podcasts of our sermons as well. But take a listen to it. It was a good, good reminder. But the thing is this. You know, talking about, you know, what the disciples might have been afraid of is one thing. But then looking at these folks, you see that there's a different reaction. These folks are different. Because ultimately... The disciples, even in their fear, never asked Jesus to go away. They always kept going back to understand better. They never asked Jesus to leave because ultimately, not only did they see the awesome power and the awesome authority of the Messiah, but they also saw his mercy and his grace. They saw both sides. And it drew them, it drew the disciples closer to Jesus. When one sees, when all one sees is the divine power of God, the only thing you can do is run away. The only thing you can do is flee. But when you see the divine power of God in conjunction with the divine grace of God, the only thing you can do is follow. Because ultimately, it is these two things together that shows us the beauty and the authenticity of the Savior of the world. Now, for those of you who do not yet proclaim to be Christian, I, I'm not asking you to do this, uh, to pr 
proclaim and claim Christ as your Savior and Redeemer out of fear only, I'm asking you to consider doing this because you see the authority of our King in balance with the mercy and His grace. Now, for those of you who are followers of Christ, Christians, followers of the one in whose authority you can depend on and lean on, the command for you, I think you're going to be able to foretell, is pretty simple. Simple. Go and tell someone about it. And this is your takeaway. Reading verses 18 to 20. Excuse me. <coughs> 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is often the unspoken tension that a that a Christian must face. You see, because it is easy and awesome to live life in the presence of God alone and with other Christians and just be happy. I mean, this, this guy, this former demoniac, this Gerasenian man, he knew it. Jesus had just made him human again. Jesus had just given him peace again. So, of course, he wanted to be in God's presence 24-7 if he could. He wanted to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. He wanted to be in a Christian bubble surrounded by praise songs and other believers. But Jesus says no. See, previous stories, Jesus often is seen telling them, uh, people he's healed, miracles he's performed, don't tell anyone. Keep it a secret. Because you know, ultimately, he's telling them this because he doesn't, he doesn't need, have the time right now to explain a lot of things like the Jewish idea of Messiah a little bit wrong. You're coming in with these assumptions that the Messiah for the Jews is a conqueror over the Romans. He's coming to kill and maim. They don't get that the Messiah is a suffering Savior who comes to redeem and heal the world, not conquer the Romans. And so he's telling the Jews Keep this a secret. I need the time to explain. Take away the baggage and the assumptions that the Jews have. I have to clear all that up first. No, with this guy, this unnamed guy who lives among non-Jewish people who don't have that baggage, who don't have those assumptions, Jesus goes and tells him, go. Tell your friends. Tell everyone. ASAP. Give them the news. And so he does. The friend I talked about at the start of today's service, she gave me permission to share her story, by the way. Um, 
she wants, she's a big advocate for, for autistic children. So if you want to learn more about it, I'll be happy to tell you. But anyway, she's an amazing woman. Like I said, I've known her for over 30 years. And as we're watching powerlessly her son having this meltdown, she simply knelt down next to him, stroking his hand and then whispering into his ear and calming him down. See, in her presence, with her voice in his ear, her son was at peace. He was calm enough to be able to put on his shoes, climb back into the van, and head home. I have a feeling that many of us have had moments where we felt totally out of control, have had moments where it felt like the world was attacking you, or, or felt like you were going to die because the weight of the world was on your shoulders. And there was just something happening in your life. We're like, God, why? Mark is sharing a message about the Savior in this story. Is that is a Savior who demonstrates his power, who demonstrates his dominion and authority over all things from the natural to the supernatural. And the same Savior is doing it for you with you. You see, as the weight of the world is crushing you, as the sins of your past continue to haunt you, as Satan tempts you with lies, half-truths, Jesus is holding your hand. He's soothing your soul. He's calming your mind. He's whispering into your ear. And he's doing this so that you can go to your friends to tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on each and every one of you. Let's close this prayer.